For Thursday, January 28th, 2021, this is Did You Wash Your Hands? We're a podcast from WABE, answering the questions everyone's asking during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm health reporter Sam Whitehead. Today, the COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in the U.S. train your body to recognize a single protein that makes up part of the coronavirus. Your body will then make antibodies against that protein, but at the same time, it can also train cells to remember that protein so that if it sees it again, the body can react very rapidly to it and help clear the virus very quickly. Philip Santangelo, a biomedical engineering researcher at Georgia Tech, joins me for a look at the technology behind the mRNA vaccines. That's next. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Support for WABE's local coverage on maternal health and mortality comes from Georgia Health Initiative, whose mission is to inspire and promote collective action that advances health equity for all Georgians. Learn more at georgiahealthinitiative.org. The two COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use in the U.S. rely on similar technology. The products from Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech use mRNA to train your body to fight COVID-19 and don't contain the actual coronavirus. Here for a deep dive into the technology behind the vaccines is Philip Santangelo. He's a biomedical engineering researcher at Georgia Tech. Philip, thanks for talking with me. No problem at all. I want to start just really, really basically. What is mRNA? So... First, what does mRNA even stand for? It stands for messenger RNA. So to understand what that molecule is, we should probably take a step back and just think about how cells work. So when your cells want to make a protein, okay, and they make proteins for lots and lots of reasons for basically controlling how cells function, it starts with your DNA. There's a process called transcription that basically produces that mRNA. It's an RNA molecule that's considered what we call a message. So it essentially is a sort of placeholder between DNA and protein. It's a template for protein production. So in your cells, when mRNA is made, it actually moves from the nucleus into the cytosol, so into the outer reaches of the cell, so to speak. And then what happens is that um, it gets translated through machinery into protein. So if this is this messenger, a way that our cells use to to create proteins, how does it actually work in these two vaccines? My general understanding is where the way they work is they train your body to recognize the virus itself. 
what folks have been doing for years is been trying to find good ways, safe ways of introducing molecules into cells in your body to produce therapeutic proteins or proteins that were relevant for vaccines. If you think about it, maybe the smartest thing to do was just to make the message. So make that intermediate molecule that's a template for protein production. So what's done now is that Moderna and BioNTech, they make just the message for making a protein from the virus that causes COVID. And so they can encode in the messenger RNA the instructions for making that protein. That's the first part. So that messenger RNA, once you make it uh, and you introduce it into a cell, the cell will immediately make that very, very rapidly actually start making the protein that it encodes for or essentially that it's the instructions for. But that's what messenger RNA is. And it's a molecule that you can make in the lab. So it's still made from DNA, but not from your DNA. <laughs> Instead, you can make synthetic DNA that would have the instructions for a protein of interest. And that DNA is then put in literally in a tube. We mix it with enzymes and it produces the RNA. So it's made in a tube. It's not made from cells. It's not made from any human cell origin. <laughs> and so um, in some ways, it's a very, very simple way of making a molecule that has the instructions for a protein that's made by the virus. So what actually happens when someone gets the needle stick and they get this mRNA injected into their body? Yes. So the way that that works is that both Moderna and BioNTech have made an mRNA that encodes for one protein that the virus makes, the spike protein. Okay. So it has the instructions to make the spike protein. The problem with the mRNA itself is that they give it by intramuscular injection. If you put naked RNA into the muscle, it will get taken up and it will be expressed, but very poorly. So instead, they both wrap it in little fat molecules and a little bit of cholesterol, not enough to cause you any problems. And when you wrap the RNA in that molecule and then inject it into the muscle, it gets taken up far more efficiently by muscle cells. It also can be taken up by immune cells. And what happens is it actually produces that viral protein. Now, when you inject that into the arm, okay, what happens? Well, the first thing is that when you stick a needle into your arm, you damage the tissue. And so that is the first danger sign to your body that something bad has happened. And what happens then is that immune cells rush to that site. Now, when they get there, they pick up anything that looks foreign. And so the mRNA has now been expressed. It's made the spike protein. And so your immune system goes and picks up that spike protein. And then what they do is they take it back to lymph nodes. And what they do is they show it to parts of your immune system. And the immune system goes, ah, that's not good. That's not supposed to be there. And so that is what sets off this entire training of your immune system to see that protein. And why that's important is that your body will then make antibodies against that protein. But at the same time, it can also train cells to remember that protein so that if it sees it again, the body can react very rapidly to it and help clear the virus very quickly. You mentioned the spike protein. We've all seen that same kind of close-up magnified image of the coronavirus. The spike protein are those little red spiky things we see sticking off it, right? Correct. So when you look at, you see the virus looks like a ball with these spiky things sticking out the top of it. That's the protein. It is what virologists and immunologists predicted would be 
the most important protein for them to basically show to the immune system. And a lot of that was learned from previous vaccines that had been worked on for the original SARS virus back in the early 2000s. And they'd also worked on MERS. So they knew that the spike protein was likely the most important protein to show to the immune system. And it's interesting that training your body to only recognize part of a virus, that is apparently enough to induce levels of protection with these two vaccines upwards of 90%. Should that be surprising that your body doesn't have to make the whole virus to effectively be able to fight it off? It is a bit surprising, to be honest. And so uh, these are called subunit vaccines. So they contain a subunit vaccine contains just a part of the pathogen. And so sometimes they don't work very well at all, to be perfectly honest. So I think that it was a bit of a surprise. I think that from previous work, they had a good idea that certainly the spike would be enough. But in many cases for other vaccines, they have to include other proteins, not just one protein from the virus. They may need to include others to provoke the best responses overall. So in some sense, maybe we did get a little lucky in the matter of speaking that that protein was sufficient. And I will say this much too. There are times when one protein is so strongly antigenic that you don't need additional proteins. Every pathogen is kind of a new adventure. And so... um you can just say from HIV, they've tried just one part, the envelope, which is similar to the spike, but it doesn't appear to be sufficient. They often are looking at multiple proteins. So it just depends on the pathogen. In this case, though, it does look like spike has been has been very good. We've established that our cells are constantly producing mRNA. When it's injected into the body in a vaccine, how long does that stick around in your body? And, and does it kind of mess with your own body's natural processes. So one of the things that makes an mRNA-based vaccine very safe is the fact that the mRNA that's injected does degrade over time, and it degrades using the same mechanisms that the mRNA made by your own cells does. Now, how long it hangs around depends on the design of the mRNA, but let's just say three, four, five days, not much longer than that. So that's one very, very important aspect. And another one is that when we've looked at mRNA delivery, mRNA delivery appears to only deliver the mRNA outside the nucleus. So it does not and it should not have any interference with your DNA. It should not affect your DNA at all. And this is a question I've seen on the internet numerous places where people think that possibly these, va these vaccines are going to alter your DNA. They really can't do that. And so these are very safe because this molecule doesn't even get to your DNA it stays outside of the nucleus, and it then degrades over time. And so uh, that's one of the, I would say, big bonuses of this approach is safety. Uh, in many ways, these vaccines are better understood in terms of the exact components that are going into them and what will happen to them afterwards than many other vaccines. It's true, we don't know everything, I'll admit that. But at the same time, I think it's we do know that these mRNAs will degrade over time and they should ha not interfere with your DNA in any measurable fashion. This is, did you wash your hands? I'm Sam Whitehead, talking today with Philip Santangelo, a biomedical engineering researcher at Georgia Tech. We're discussing the technology behind the two COVID-19 vaccines authorized for use here in the U.S. 
How do we know so much more about the ways that these vaccines work in the body than others? I mean, what you've really walked me through here is is kind of a very engineered process with what seem like pretty well-defined steps. Is that not how other vaccines work in the body? Not exactly. So many other vaccines contain the entire virus. And so in many cases, what happens to them after they've been injected into the body is not really that well understood. Vaccinology in general has really looked at the outcome. So they will take a pathogen, they'll inhibit that, they'll either attenuate it or they, or they will inactivate it. They'll inject it into the body and then they'll look for the response. So do you get antibodies? They look for that downstream response. It's only been in the last, I would say, five to 10 years where people have really started to say, hey, where do these end up? But this has not been common in the field of vaccinology or immunology, but certainly now it's becoming more and more important. And certainly Moderna and BioNTech have spent time uh, certainly looking at their vaccines to understand how they work. But I think Inherently, we know that mRNAs degrade when they enter a cell. I mean, they're translated for a certain period of time, and then they degrade. And that's, in some sense, it's a negative. In some applications, people would like them to hang around for very very long periods of time and make protein. But for vaccines, they're really a great match because we know they go away. So other than the mRNA and these fats that you've explained help them get into cells, what else is actually in these vaccines? So there's typically a couple of lipids, there is cholesterol, and then there's usually a what's called a PEG lipid. So there is some polyethylene glycol. It's a small amount. PEG is used in lots and lots of products that you ingest actually all the time. Toothpaste is one I always refer to, but there are other products that contain PEG. So that's all there is to it and the mRNA. And uh, what happens is that there are these devices where you put the mRNA in one path, so to speak, and you put the lipids in the other path and they're mixed together. And then what comes out the other end are these particles. And that's really all there is to it. Um, They get diluted some and they have to be manipulated some for putting that into vials, but there really isn't too much more than that. Actually, if you go to the, I think there's the, the FDA has on their, either on their website or it's available through the FDA, the components in each of these vaccines and they are, it's fairly simple list. Matter of fact, it's shorter than uh, many products if you look on the back of it that you eat all the time. And there's this laundry list of chemicals, some of which you may or may not be familiar with. It's actually a much shorter list than that. So I think that that's, a, that's also a positive thing too. If these are relatively simple vaccines, at least if we look at the components, did that in any way contribute to how quickly they were able to be developed? Yes, absolutely. Both BioNTech and Moderna had been developing vaccines for obviously other pathogens, and they already had in their pipeline the lipids and uh, and fats that were used for delivery. That was already there. And so they already had the delivery formulation. They just had to add a new RNA. And for them, making a new RNA, like uh, once they knew the sequence for the spike protein, is extremely straightforward for them to do. And now they had some help. Moderna had some help from the NIH regarding the design of the protein some. But the point of the matter is that once they had that sequence, 
it's very easy for them to put into their pipeline and make the RNA and then fairly straightforward for them to incorporate it into that package, that particle that they had already done. And so one of the things about these kinds of vaccines is they are somewhat plug and play. And that's why they were able to go so quickly. That's one of the differences between other types of vaccines where each vaccine is an call it a new adventure. They're not plug and play. And so, um, and, and to be honest, that's partially why there had been investments from various agencies, even the United States government into this type of vaccine, because they wanted us to be prepared as much as possible for a pandemic. People might have the experience of, say, getting a flu shot and, you know, feeling a little crummy for a day or two, having some injection site pain. We have seen reports of that with these two COVID-19 vaccines. Is, is there something about this particular kind of technology that might change that experience for someone, say, make them experience more symptoms or fewer than they might be used to when getting other vaccinations? I don't think we understand that uh, as completely as we would like. When you inject the RNA into your muscle, what's one of the first things that happens, these immune cells rush into the muscle. Well, they weren't there before and they start taking up space that they they, they shouldn't be. And so that actually presses on nerves it's, and, and that's why it hurts. And that's why you have soreness because you have this infiltrating immune cells. But the reality is you want that. You need that for them to pick up that the protein that's made by the mRNA and then take it to your lymph nodes. So more extreme reactions obviously are not good. But in general, being sore, uh, having your body react to the fact that there is a viral protein that was made is not, you know, not necessarily a bad thing. It means your body's recognizing it. So it's not great. And I know we don't really like it. But at the same time, it means your body's responding. And so I think that, uh, and everybody's a little different. So how much of a response you have uh, is different. But it's not necessarily a bad thing that that's going to happen. So uh, honestly, when we first looked at just even injections in muscle, I was surprised that a needle that injected saline would actually provoke immune cells because you're damaging the tissue. And it makes sense when you think about it. But until we actually started looking at it, we realized, oh, yeah, of course, you're going to you're going to have that happen. And of course, it's not going to feel that great. But it's part of the process. Researchers at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention um, in the last month have released a few different reports saying that cases of anaphylaxis, severe allergic reaction, have been documented even though they are rare. Is that something that is linked to this technology in any way? I am sure that some people are sensitive to the polyethylene glycol, to the PEG. There are some of the lipids that are in it it's possible that some folks are more sensitive to also. That's definitely a possibility. So, I mean, over time, I'm sure that that lipid formulation may change to either mitigate some of those responses in other folks. So I could see that happening. I will say it's highly unlikely it's due to the RNA. Um, the fortunate thing about RNA is that these RNAs are modified in a way that that really helps prevent any responses from the immune system. That's a good thing. So that, that's that been taken care of. It's more likely it's some of the lipid components or the PEG. I would say those are probably the two things um, that may need to be tweaked over time to decrease any of these allergic responses in folks that are very sensitive. Well, and, and I'm, I'm wondering too, you know, we've had these two vaccines with us for just a little over uh, a month now that states have been administering them. What are you watching for? What should the general public be watching for as the vaccine continues to be rolled out? What are you watching for? What are you, what are you hoping we, we learn more about down the road? 
Oh, absolutely. I think durability is is a big question. So it'll be interesting to see how long we see antibody responses from folks. And so, you know, the antibody responses over time, even if your antibodies tend to decrease over time, that's not necessarily the end of the world because if you have these memory responses, you can respond very quickly. I think this are, uh, these vaccines should engender uh, strong memory responses, but we don't know yet. And so I think that uh, seeing that will be really important in terms of understanding the durability. Uh, I think it's also just going to be really interesting to see how does this affect the viral dynamics in the population? I mean, do we, if enough people get vaccinated, do we really start to see cases come down at, at an accelerated rate? There's a lot to be understood about how these vaccines are affecting the dynamics of the virus in our population in particular, because we're going to be putting pressure on the virus in a way that we haven't done yet. So it's going to be interesting to see how that how that plays out. There is still, you, you are absolutely correct, there is a lot for us to learn from this. I don't think we've vaccinated, you know, this is a huge undertaking to vaccinate as many people as we're trying to vaccinate, and we still have a pathogen that's quite prevalent in the population. Philip Santangelo is a biomedical engineering researcher at Georgia Tech. Did You Wash Your Hands is a production of 90.1 WABE Atlanta, where ATL meets NPR. WABE's managing editor is Alex Helmick. Scott Wolfel is chief content officer. You can reach us at washyourhands at wabe.org. You can find all our episodes in your favorite podcast app. That's where you can also leave us a rating and a review. That really helps others find the show. And you can find more stories on the coronavirus pandemic at wabe.org slash coronavirus. If you haven't recently, now might be a good time to go wash your hands. I'm Sam Whitehead. Thanks for listening. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.